You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted to be joined again here today by Chris Murray, Director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. He's professor there and chairman of the Department of Health Metric Sciences at the University of Washington. Chris, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here again, Steve. So we know that modelers have become very visible, very conspicuous, and very significant in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. Chris and others have become marquee actors. There's many of them. There's many different methodologies and assumptions, and there's still many unknowns in the course of all of this. As these projections and forecasts are put forward, it brings forward lots of questions around the assumptions, around the intentions, around the timeline, and the uncertainties that are at play. Chris has become a premier modeler and personality in, in explaining all of this over the course of the last nine months and before that, but certainly in this pandemic when when modelers have become so important. Chris, your recent projections that you came forward with early September are bold and dramatic and somewhat bleak. You're arguing that a major surge lies ahead in the United States and elsewhere at the end of the year and extending into the new year. You made some fairly strong projections that the number of deaths in the United States by the end of the year would be 415,000. That's adding another 215,000 to the death count that we have today. You've lowered that a little bit to adjust for some changes that have happened in the latest September 17th estimate. You're calling for pretty striking rises in the death rates and the case counts up to the elections and beyond into the new year. And that even under the best of circumstances, as we enter the new year, we'll still, in your estimation, be only about halfway through this through this pandemic. You're arguing that there are a number of drivers that account for this, and I'm going to ask you to explain, but that they're overwhelmingly behavioral. They are human behavior, declining mask use, mobility, social distancing, and seasonality changes, which are partly just climate, but also behavioral Why did you walk us through, how did you arrive at these stark projections and the decision to reach reach out into the end of the year, which is a little longer than most of the modelers are accustomed to doing. Many of them tend to be a little more cautious and keep their uncertainties at lesser levels and keep the projections a little shorter. Thanks for joining us and please walk us through this most recent and and vivid set of portraits. Thanks, Steve. And let me start First, about the sort of types of models that are out there or or the types of forecasts that we make and others make. I think there's one group of users that need about a four-week forecast, and those are mostly healthcare providers for planning purposes, you know, planning for potential surges. And there's a real very specific local community-based need on that front. On the policy front, We get asked by governments and actually lots of other actors for very long-range forecasts, a year or more out, because some of the trade-offs between, for example, unemployment, the economy, GDP growth versus saving lives play out on that sort of timescale. And so that's why we have run our models quite far out for Bill and Melinda Gates' goalkeeper's uh, report 
that came out last week, we actually ran models to the end of 2021. But now what we do as a sort of matter of course for public release, we go out about four months. So as, at each month, we go out one more month. And so we've been doing that since early June. We've also been changing our model as time goes by. So we started off in March with a very simple statistical model. It was actually called CurveFit. Based on just looking at the shape of the epidemic in other places. And then we've transited in late April, early May into a more what I would call traditional transmission dynamics model. But we use a statistical approach to figure out what all the parameters that should be in that model. And those parameters in the transmission model are changing. They're driven by behavioral factors like mask use and mobility and also by some physical factors or, you know, factors that we don't necessarily know all the details behind, such as seasonality. And so those are the ingredients that go into our model. And we keep, uh, like everybody in the modeling arena, we keep looking for ways to improve the model. Now, if you're a user of, of these models, the first question you should have is, should you pay any attention to them? And I think the good news is that, you know, the models have done pretty well. And the way we know that is we can take all the models that publicly archive their results, which includes us and five other groups, so that you can go back and actually pull down the data and compare to what happened. And on average, those six modeling efforts give you an error at six weeks of about 20% on average. And for those who go out longer, which are about three of the modeling groups, at 10 weeks, we get about a 30% error on average for the modeling groups. We happen to perform the best in that sort of horse race, and we have about a 20% error at 10 weeks. So that's all background to say, you know, models aren't that bad, come with a lot of, you know, wide ranges, lots of uncertainty. There is a policy need for the long-range modeling. And they're probably better than a lot of people expect. But Chris, this is Andrew. I mean, we listen to you and the Chris Murray model. I know you don't like to take credit for it, but the, but it is known widely as the Chris Murray model. And it's known as the Chris Murray model because it works and it's been proven right. And you argue that seasonality is going to turbocharge the pandemic in the North. How have you come to that conclusion? Critical question, because seasonality is the key driver, along with, you know, declining vigilance from individuals as we head into the winter. And the way we get that is by analyzing Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere at the same time. And in particular, if you look, there were these big epidemics in Southern states in Brazil, in Chile, in Argentina, in South Africa. They came later. They came in their more in their winter season. And the statistical analysis contrasts that with the analogous countries or states in the same latitudes in the north, which had much less going on during the winter season or, or the analogous summer season. And that's where we get this statistical relationship that we're using to estimate the seasonal effect. Is that seasonal effect credible? Certainly, because the way we get it is we take past pneumonia death rates week by week in each country, each state in the past. And we stick that in as one of the predictors in the model. And then the statistical model tells us how strong is that. And it turns out to be as strong as pneumonia on average. So all we're actually saying is that COVID is going to act on average 
like all the other respiratory pathogens in aggregate in each state, which is not really a you know a wild claim. Once you do that, then you recognize that there's a strong seasonal pattern, and that's going to you know taking everything else into account drive uh, an upsurge in the fall and the winter. We're already seeing this upsurge in a place like Madrid in Spain or in France or now in the UK this week. So. Sort of as we predicted many months ago, the the fall winter surge has, be, has begun in Europe. It hasn't yet kicked in in the U.S. to the same degree. Uh, we're not 100% sure why it's a little bit delayed. But I think everything that we see in the data tells us there will be the, the winter surge. Is it fair? I mean, it's fair, Chris, to say that people are on edge. People are nervous. We've gotten through the the first nine months. There's been some successes in some places, been great disappointments in others, and now we're heading into this new uncertainty. And and you're coming forward with a projection that says, you know, we could basically double the rate very rapidly. And beneath that, I believe, and just reading the comments from Tony Fauci and others in the last two weeks, there are, there's also this argument, sub-argument that I wanted you to comment on that we never really got our baseline down, right? We're now at, even though we've got reductions in the places that were really storming badly in July and August, those numbers have come down. We still are cruising at 35,000 cases a day. We're still cruising at 800 to 900 deaths per day. The baseline still remains very, very high. Does that factor into your thinking in terms of the wallop that may lie just around the corner in terms of this surge when you have the compound of winter seasonality entering, which may be people going indoors, maybe the fact that the virus behaves differently and when it's cold, some uncertainties around the science, but you're looking at what's happened in these places you described and said, why are we going to be different? We're going to get, we're going to get that compound impact. But in the U.S., is it also because we've not been able to get the baseline down? I mean, in Spain and other places, the numbers they're recording on daily are, are fewer than 20 or 30 cases a day. And we're looking at 35,000. Absolutely, Steve. The bigger the community transmission as we head into the fall, the earlier we're going to see the surge. And that's what the model does. You know, the places where the rates have come down pretty low in the U.S., you know, think New York up till now, probably will have a later surge than the places that have tons of transmission still going on. That's the sort of way it works, if, if you want to think of it that way. And absolutely, I think it's taken, uh, you know, the, the surge in Europe is all the more reaffirming and concerning because it's coming from a very low baseline in many of the countries that had the early big epidemics. So, uh, you know, there's a number of these factors that will affect when the surge occurs. You know, for example, we're now wondering, is all the smoke on the West Coast going to delay the surge in Washington, Oregon, and California by two or three weeks? Because people have had this sort of almost lockdown because of the smoke. And that's got to have affected transmission. So there's a lot of things that have to go into this that makes it sort of hard. That's why there's big ranges in them. But I think from a planner's point of view, what matters is there's a big surge coming and what are we going to do about it? And interestingly, in the timing of what you put forward, it looks like this is not going to really affect our electoral cycle. It's going to come after that, right? 
It's going to come after it. And I think it's a very big worry that, you know, to make sure that we have a sensible strategy in place to manage this surge, either under re-election of President Trump or if Vice President Biden wins, you know, how will that interregnum you know, be managed so that we are on top of the epidemic in that period? The thing that I'm so anxious to ask you, though, Chris, is that, you know, with the numbers coming down, you know, especially here on the East Coast, you know, New York, here in D.C., Maryland, Virginia, a lot of people that I know are talking about and even taking liberties such as, you know, people are actually going to restaurants indoors. People are talking about getting on airplanes and going to, you know, vacation spots, <laughs> things like that. Why is it that we're apparently stuck in this kind of a roller coaster incapable of learning to stick with actions that actually work to keep this from coming back? You know, I, I don't know other than the natural human desire to want things to be better and to overinterpret those signals. But you just got to look at the places that have already been through a couple of the roller coasters already. You know, Israel is a great example. They brought it under control really early then relaxation of people's behavior. And now they're in a full-blown, you know, upsurge. And now they're back into lockdown. And the same thing in Serbia, the same thing is unfolding in a number of places in Europe. So it's getting repeated over and over, this sort of roller coaster phenomenon. And it's really hard to know how we sort of get people to not overinterpret good news, in a sense, and change their behavior in response to what they perceive as good news. I mean, you know, I'm hearing from people like, okay, well, it's going to get cold here in a couple months and people are going to start saying, well, okay, we're not going to be able to go out anywhere or do anything. So we might as well get on a plane and fly down to Florida where we can at least be outside and we can go to restaurants outside and we can do things outside. Otherwise, we're going to be cooped up here and stuck in our homes and not able to do anything. And we're seeing news articles that say, well, you only have a one in 4,000 chance of contracting the virus if you get on a plane. This doesn't add up to me at all. Yeah, I don't know where the one in 4,000 comes from because it obviously depends how many people on the plane have COVID, right? So, you know, if there's a lot of people, if, if community rates are up, then your chances in a plane are going to go way up. Again, it's, it's sort of like the school opening debate where people... The, the window to have open schools was September and then because they're going to have to close again when things get bad. And yet some people have, you know, are still I hear still parents groups talking about opening schools in November or December or January. I think there's just a disconnect from what's coming in many people's minds. There's also a disconnect on Wall Street. Right. I don't think that the, the financial markets are, are capturing the actual risk that, that's there. Do people think this is just going to disappear? I mean, John Barry told us, and if you read, you know, his history of the pandemic, Spanish flu, it eventually burned out and nobody really knew why. Do you think people just think this is going to disappear? I think they hope it. And, you know, really smart, capable modelers, you know, if you look at the, the, the other people who are modeling into December. So for the U.S., that's Imperial, that's the MIT group. And a group at USC, and they model almost as late as we do. All three of them have the epidemic going away. And so it's not just general public, but it's actually some of the professional modelers who 
at the end of the day, are running trends forward from what we see now. You know, they're, they're, they're understanding the dynamics that explain the last month, and then they run those into the future. And those models say, hey, it's, it's, it's gone. It's going away. Uh, it, it'll be down to under 200 deaths a day in December. Now, you know, uh, we don't think that's the case. I don't think the evidence around the world supports that. But if professional modelers can think that, we shouldn't be surprised that, you know, thoughtful citizens think the same. But that does make, make it difficult to get people's attention if there's a lot of noise and contradiction in the modeling, right? If you have folks that are offering quite contradictory descriptions of what lies ahead, it makes your life a little bit more difficult, doesn't it? It does. And I think it, it emphasizes, Steve, the importance of really coming to grips with the evidence that supports seasonality. The reason those models are saying epidemics over and, and disappearing, or at least for now, is that they don't they haven't built in seasonality. They haven't captured any variables that include seasonality. And I think that is where we need to, you know, have a robust discussion. It would be quite remarkable if COVID-19 was the only respiratory virus that has no seasonality. So, you know, most of the biologies would support that. And then, you know, just looking at what's happened in the Southern Hemisphere uh, is is the other big support. And then now what's happening in Europe. It's really hard to explain what we see in the world without seasonality. And yet, I think we haven't had as robust a discussion about that as, as we need. Now, one implication of your argument, if your argument of the surge, of this really powerful surge coming around, not too distant future, if that is borne out, it's going to push us back into the debate around what to do, right? And we're going to be back to what are the measures, because if it's as awful as you're, as you're predicting, we're not going to be able to nibble around the edges. We're going to have to come back to what form of control is going to be needed here. And we know that there's great aversion to kind of a blanket lockdown. There's a desire to start searching for intrusive measures that are more discriminating less disruptive of economies and other parts of society, schools included, but also that there's going to be a a need for more political will behind all of this on a sustained basis and some measure of sanctions and coercive action that's going to bring this into force. In other words, if what you are predicting is true, if we hit 3,000 deaths a day, it's a national emergency, no question. Nobody can sit around and go, well, just wait a few weeks, that'll be over. And if we're sailing along, you know, with no further decline below 800 a day day, or 35,000 cases, we're cruising along at a already at a pretty powerful, widespread virus in our across our country. What's your thinking on on the kind of policy answer of okay, you're right. Now what? Now what are we going to do? So there's one part that's sort of easy, and I think the evidence is there now, and that is to have a national mask mandate with penalties for not wearing a mask. We know penalties help from looking across communities that have used them. So we can probably get mask use up that way 15, 20 percentage points. That's a pretty big effect. Like it's a, it could be like a really big effect. It's not going to be enough in my mind. Um, 
because I don't think we'll ever get to 95% mask use. So we're not going to like, you know, stop it in its tracks through mask use. I mean, even though it's the single easiest thing that people can do. It is. It's crazy. And, you know, many countries, in addition to Southeast Asia, in Latin America, have got their mask use up in the high 80s and low 90s. Arrests are below 50% and dropping. That is right. Well, let's say that again. We have six states in our country that are above 50% usage of masks. Yeah. That's it. That's it. So it, it it's pretty dismal on that front, but there's huge potential there. And I do think we could get at 15, 20 percentage points if there was concerted leadership and, and, and penalties associated with not wearing a mask. I don't think it'll be enough. And so then the, the really big question is, what is enough to stop hospitals being overwhelmed is closing bars, indoor dining and gatherings of 10 or more enough. And there's been this huge national experiment, natural experiment, which is every city and county has done a little bit different things. And we should be able to go back at the county or city level and analyze what were all the mandates put in place and, to, and get a much more nuanced understanding. But there's no national database of those mandates. And we don't even have access to age-specific data on hospitalizations and cases in every county and city, which we know the government has because, you know, Vice President Pence, you know, mandated that get reported. And yet HHS, CDC is not being releasing that data and we don't have this mandate database. And so we're we're heading into the fall flying blind in a sense because the research community, not just us, but the whole research community should be pouring over that data to figure out what worked in the U.S. in the spring and the summer and be able to try to get a meaningful answer to that question about what's enough. You know, what, what are the things that won't kill the economy that will really put the brakes on transmission? Uh, and I find that's that's my biggest source of frustration, which is – so that's whether it's whether it's Biden or Trump that wins the election and whether it's Democrats or Republicans who control the Senate, that these are the questions that are going to be front and center in the first quarter of, of 2021 and the second quarter of 2021 or sooner. You know, you know we will be in such a better position if we have that uh, get the evidence together. We have that political debate and dialogue in November, rather than waiting till it's upon us and hospitals are overwhelmed, right? And and I think yeah. that's yeah. that's where I get my sense of urgency that we really need to figure out what worked where in the past six to nine months, so that we can manage this as we go forward. Chris, do you think that? Our leaders on both sides can be shocked and, and, and American citizens as well can look at these estimates and hear what you're saying and can be shocked into action. You know, I'm, I'm sort of hopeful. I think there are people in both parties that are really concerned about what will be the response. And I think there are, you know, there's enough people in the around policy community that are worrying about these things. I just think we need to have this become a little bit more in prioritized. It's difficult in the run-up, you know, a November 4th election, uh, as you can guess. Yeah, I would think right now, I mean, it's just so hard to penetrate the chaos and the turbulence that exists right now within our own national debate. 
you know, you're sounding the alarm about something that's not too far off in the future that's pretty dramatic and profound. I'm not sure that we're, it's penetrating at this point. I don't get that sense in our debate. You know, they, it certainly registers in the, the statements that are coming out from Bill Gates and from others whose voices matter so profoundly in all this. But I don't hear, I, I think our leader, our elected leadership is absorbed, is absorbed in a, another set of interlocking crises. I'd have to agree. Yeah. Well, this has not been the most cheerful conversation. Um, <laughs> what, what, what gives you hope, Chris? What, what gives you the most hope headed now as we are into this season where it is going to get cold and, you know, we are looking at a pretty dangerous time? I think what gives me hope is that with some unfortunate delay, people actually do pay attention to what happens around them. So as things start to get worse, I think that both politicians as well as the public will be much more open to wearing a mask, changing their behavior, thinking about what mandates are the right you know, level to put in place so that we can reduce transmission without you know, destroying people's jobs. And so, you know, I think there's there's some built in, you know, as economists like to use the word endogenous, but there's an endogenous response that'll come where people and politicians will start to act. It'll just come later than it should have. They'll they'll be more harm because of that. But there is that that hope there. You know, the other thing is in making our forecasts, we are doing two things. We're trying to model the dynamics of, of transmission and what drives it. And then we also have a, essentially a political economy model, which is how will the government respond? Because that's part of, you know, what will happen. And I, I sort of hope that we, we've got it wrong on, on the government response, that they'll be faster to respond and therefore they'll put the brakes on transmission sooner. And so we won't get 3,000 deaths a day. You know, we will, we will be a, a smaller number. You know, we keep trying to look for that. I think in Europe, we're starting to see governments respond quickly on the second go, look at Madrid. And so maybe that'll start to tell us that they'll be quicker to respond in some proactive way. How are you thinking about the knowledge around rising levels of infection that result to some form of immunity that we're not sure what percentage of the population has it and what it means in terms of longevity or durability? Yeah, there's some junk science videos that are getting a lot of airtime, at least on Wall Street, that I, I've heard where, you know, the argument is that uh, the mandates had nothing to do with the decline. It's because, you know, Belgium and France and the UK and New York hit, quote, herd immunity. And therefore, we're, we're just not going to see a further surge. You know, what's happening in Madrid right now just shoots that out of the water. So uh, I, I think it's easy enough to to look at, at the second wave that's happening in Europe and say, no, they, they weren't at, at herd immunity. And there's evidence out there, unfortunately, that says, 
you know, like the Charles de Gaulle aircraft carrier, where 70% of a healthy young workforce got infected. So no, no secret background immunity in, in that population. I think it, it, in the most hopeful scenario, given what we've seen already in a place like Ecuador or Peru, where 45% of people have already gotten infected, herd immunity at best would kick in at 50%. But that's also pretty wishful thinking. If it does, what we know about the death rates from it, from infection means we should expect, you know, around about 800,000 deaths in the U.S. at the end when we get to herd immunity unless we get a vaccine. So that's a lot, which means that even with the winter surge we're talking about, there's a long way to go unless we deploy a vaccine, you know, relatively quickly. On the herd immunity piece, we're starting to hear this, this rhetoric. Uh, that you were alluding to here in the United States. And we're hearing it from from top officials. I mean, we're hearing it from Roger Atlas and others, um, th- this rhetoric of, well, we have a different way of looking at things. Is that, are we going to see more and more of that, which further kind of complicates the ability to try and understand what is happening in our population? So I think you have to distinguish two different things. One is the argument, which is just wrong, that we're already at herd immunity in in many places. And that, you know, what's unfolding in Europe is just proof how wrong that is. The second argument is that herd immunity, a la what Sweden is doing, is the right strategy. And that's just a, a sort of, you know, a value premise, which says, we should prioritize the economy and not really worry about the death toll. And that's not a scientific position. That's a value uh, statement uh, for which there isn't any particular scientific response. It is a position. So I think that's the distinction I'd make there on the, on the herd immunity argument. Will we hear more? We'll hear more in the month of October. But as the numbers start to go back up, I think people will be very... Uh, from what we've seen elsewhere, I think it's very hard publicly as a politician to promote a herd immunity strategy when hospitals start to get overwhelmed. Yes. On the question of vaccines, how does how does what the surge that you're projecting, how does that begin to impact a public that's been led to be very hopeful that we're going to see some positive phase three results and that we're going to see the introduction Obviously, slow more slowly than people would hope for, but nonetheless. So, you know, I'm a I'm a vaccine optimist in the sense that I think across the array of vaccines that are being tested, we will get some that work. Uh, even if we get a vaccine that works 50 percent of the time, I mean, it has a 50 percent efficacy. If you can deploy that on half the population, that's that'll have a, a meaningful impact, you know, a quarter reduction. It'll be less than masks, but it'll still be uh, uh, an important reduction. Given what we've heard about capacity to produce and to deliver, we have not yet built in vaccine rates into our best forecast because we not yet sure that A, there'll be a vaccine authorized or B, there'll be enough doses in the end of this year. First quarter, second quarter, next year is a different story where I do think vaccination will start to be important. We're setting up our models to be able to build that in as soon as we're sure that there is a vaccine. We don't want to build it in in, in the absence of, of that information. But I think it'll be this double issue there, triple 
you know, when does a vaccine get authorized? What sort of uh, scale up and capacity can there be? And then how much vaccine hesitancy there'll be in terms of what sort of levels once you have the supply? Thank you. One last question. IHME came under criticism earlier for the way that the Trump administration made use of some of your spring projections. Are you, are you at risk? Are you fearful that this new analysis of surge could be turned to advantage in some fashion by the Trump administration that would then bring, bring more criticism? Look, we try to do uh, the, the best science that we can and put this out to both the public and to different types of decision makers, both Republican and Democratic, that reach out to us. And we'll continue doing that because we think that's the right thing to do. I think if you go back to the spring, we were very pleased that our analyses were a critical part of President Trump at the time, extending the recommendation, you know, back when he wanted to open up the country on Easter to the end of May. We were not pleased that then for economic reasons, the the, the sway within the White House shifted to opening up or recommending opening in May when we were strictly saying you had to stay closed until at least June 1. If we had done that, I think the epidemic would have been very different in this country. We would look more like Australia or New Zealand, less like we do now. Now, you know, we're heading in, it's a different time. Like we, we can't get this under control or not in a situation where testing and tracing is going to uh, be effective because there's just too much transmission. And so now we're in a business of trying to do what can be done to slow transmission until there's mass vaccination. And that, that's our collectively our best strategy or a breakthrough treatment, which could also come down the pike. Chris, thanks so much. You've really been very patient and generous with your time with us today. And we're really delighted that you join us again. Thank you very much. And we'll look forward to talking again in another two months or so. All right, Steve. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Chris.